Right now on Matter of Fact, a Marine held hostage in Iran for more than 400 days shares his story of survival. All of a sudden, the guard opens the door, recording the Super Bowl? I mean, get the heck out of here. How the big game threw a lifeline to the Americans in the middle of the Iranian hostage crisis more than 40 years ago. Plus, local journalism has deep roots in this small Michigan town. People like reading about their neighbors and their family members. But after three decades, the owners of the local newspaper want to retire. We don't want to be the ones that are shutting down a 151-year-old business. What happens to a community if its newspaper can't survive? But first, carpenters, electricians, plumbers, America is in desperate need of blue-collar professionals. Do you think there's some messaging challenges? People who are saying college, 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 when that doesn't have to be an option for everybody. That's sort of a message that we need to get out is, you can work with your hands, have a good life, and be a good member of society. The choice is ahead for Gen Z as we look at the future of work. Soledad O'Brien, welcome to Matter of Fact. America needs electricians and plumbers and carpenters. But right now, the trades are experiencing a huge labor shortage. According to a recent report, the U.S. has 650,000 openings for skilled labor. With more baby boomers retiring, the demand is expected to increase. Well, now the effort is turning to recruitment, and the focus is on Gen Z, or Zoomers. This is the generation born between 1997 and 2012. They're on track to become the most college-educated generation. Among 18 to 21-year-olds, 57% were enrolled in a two- or four-year college, which means the trade industry is struggling to attract them. Paul Iverson is an educator at the University of Iowa's Labor Center, which offers apprenticeship readiness courses. Mr. Iverson, nice to see you. Thanks for talking with me. So what do you think is the, the biggest obstacle to getting people to go into trades as opposed to going off to a two-year or a four-year college? For the past probably 40 years. Um, school counselors have been trained that in order to get ahead, in order to be successful, you need to go to college. And that's kind of the story that's been told. But you don't have to go to college if college isn't the thing for you. And that's sort of a message that we need to get out is you can work with your hands and have a good life and be a good member of society. For folks in Gen Z, I'm curious if you have found that there are stereotypes about these jobs that are, are keeping them out of considering them as a career. And, and maybe some of those stereotypes are around money. There are uh, low-wage contractors that don't pay well. But what we work with is registered apprenticeship programs that are jointly trusted between Building Trades Union and the contractors. And all apprenticeship programs are on-the-job training plus classroom training. And you're paid for the on-the-job part of it. And so to get through the five-year program, you'll make about $250,000 as an apprentice uh, pipe fitter or plumber. Your first year as a journey worker, you'll be making about $80,000 a year. So realistically, if you go in straight out of high school, you can be 23 years old, um, making $80,000 a year with no debt. 
historically, as you well know, a lot of those trade jobs were not open to women, were not open to people of color, were not open to immigrants. Are you saying there's been a, a, a 180? There has been a concerted effort to change that. And one of the things that programs have to do is actively recruit people from groups that are currently underrepresented in the trades. And so the focus areas are women, people of color, youth age 16 to 24, relevant to the Gen Z part, people with disabilities and veterans. When you look at surveys of, of Gen Z, what they say they want is stability of income. They want to be entrepreneurs and they want to have a mission involved in their job. Does that make your, your pitch to them easier? The mission is building America. Every tradesperson I talk to has a story about how they um, bore their kids and grandkids with, I built that building, I built that bridge, you know? And so there's a, there's a real pride in the work that you've done. And the entrepreneurial part of it, I tell people, if you go through an apprenticeship program and you become a journey worker, you're gonna have a good life. But if you want to go beyond that, you can move up to a foreman, to a general foreman, you can become an estimator, you can uh, start your own uh, contracting firm. So the possibilities are limitless. Paul Iverson is with the University of Iowa Labor Center. It's so nice to talk to you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, Sotodad. Next on Matter of Fact, a tale of the tapes. I was holding on to them and I said to them, you promised you would allow the hostages to hear this. How a big play off the field brought a small token of home to American hostages in Iran. Plus, a local newspaper in Michigan is trying to survive. I just can't picture Homer without a, his own paper. The efforts to find a buyer to pass on the community diary dating back to the 19th century. And later, we'll show you how a robot can liquefy and reform itself over and over again. You're watching Matter of Fact, America's number one nationally syndicated public affairs news magazine. Super Bowl 57 is predicted to be one for the books. The Philadelphia Eagles and Kansas City Chiefs will battle it out for the top title. A record 50.4 million people are expected to place a bet. And while they will have a lot riding on the outcome, nothing compares to what was at stake during Super Bowl 14. That was the big game between the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Los Angeles Rams back on January 20th, 1980. And it played out against the backdrop of the Iranian hostage crisis. Here's our special correspondent, Joey Chen, with a nearly forgotten story about big plays made on and off the field. By any measure, Los Angeles was the underdog that Super Bowl Sunday. The Steelers' Terry Bradshaw was voted MVP, but there was another key player on that day and another history-making handoff, although it took place 7,500 miles and a world away. I will never forget that morning on November 4th when I'm seeing them come over the wall and the gate, there was no security whatsoever. Only 29 days earlier, Rocky Sigmund arrived at the U.S. Embassy in Tehran as a Marine guard. He became one of 52 Americans held hostage for 444 days interrogated, threatened, and very often left completely alone. 
and you're thinking that who really cares about us because the world's going on without us, you had to go back to a, a good place, and a good place was growing up in the town of Washington, Missouri, uh, playing football. Meanwhile, an unlikely lifeline appeared outside the compound. Then a cub reporter for an L.A. radio station, Alex Payne grabbed his chance at the world's biggest story. Less than a month later, Payne was in Tehran. Do you even know what you're getting yourself into? Not, not really. At that age, and I was 26, you know, you, you don't feel like you're going to get in any trouble. The next day, I went to the embassy and there was a huge crowd. It was very scary because I had my tape recorder, you know, slung over my shoulder and my microphone, and I'd wade through the crowd, but they're pushing and shoving, and uh, they're yelling death to America. Slowly, Payne won over the guards and became the conduit for millions of letters from home. This is me holding up one of the cards, one of the envelopes the cards came in. Yes, America, they made a difference. They open the door and they bring in this pile of, of uh, cards. And we look at each other like, what the heck is this? And we start picking up these cards and we start reading like we're praying for you. Then Payne made another special delivery, the Super Bowl. The kickoff came around 3 a.m. Tehran time. Jimming a link to a tape recorder, Payne recorded the whole game, and then... At 6 in the morning, I bundled up and went to the embassy and gave the cassettes to the militants. But as I was handing them the cassettes, I was holding on to them and I said to them, you promised you would allow the hostages to hear this. They said, yes, yes. And some of them there, there was several of them, said, we want to hear it too. All of a sudden, the guard opens the door, and again, we jump, and he brings in a tape recorder, and he says, this is a recording of the Super Bowl. And again, we all look at each other like, recording the Super Bowl? I mean, get the heck out of here. In that unreal moment, Alex Payne scored a victory for the ages. He had a mission, and he succeeded in that mission. God love him. For Matter of Fact, I'm Joey Chen. Last weekend, we reported on growing demonstrations in Iran calling for women's rights, where protesters are being met with a swift and violent response from authorities. You can see our correspondent Jessica Gomez's personal story about two of her family members who were forced to flee Iran and who have been working for decades to hold the government accountable for all their alleged crimes. Go to matteroffact.tv. Coming up, this newspaper means a lot to a village in Michigan. It's just a small part of the quality of life that makes a community special. It's a living diary. It is, and there's something about it being in the print that gives it validity. Now, the owners are looking for a way to keep the historical paper going as they try to retire. And later, how this board game turns you into a mole, earthworm, or fungi to save the planet. Local newspapers in small towns are often the lifeblood of their communities. So what happens when they're on the brink of closing? The Homer Index was created 150 years ago and covers news for the village of Homer, Michigan. It's a tiny place with a population of about 1,700. It's about 30 miles outside of Battle Creek. The owners are desperate to sell the paper so they can retire, but no one's stepping up to buy it. Our correspondent, Dina Demetrius, has more on the place that's looking for the perfect offer 
before it's too late. I've always said that newspapers are a way communities talk to each other. On this stretch of southern Michigan dotted with dairy and crop farms sits the nearly 200-year-old village of Homer. There's $4. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Since 1872, the Homer Index has chronicled the lives and experiences of this community of 1700. For three decades now, Sharon Warner has run the business end, while her husband Mike has been its publisher and practically its sole reporter and photographer. My grandfather worked in the uh, production end of a uh, newspaper in, in Minnesota. My dad owned an, a printing plant uh, and a weekly newspaper and a shopper's guide. So, um, yeah, that's been something I've been around my whole life. Mike dreamt of owning his own paper, so the Warners put every penny they had, $75,000, into buying the index. Now the time has come to retire, but the plan to sell it and fund their nest egg has stalled. They last listed it for $150,000. So far, there are no takers. And if we were to shut our doors and go away, the community, in my opinion, would lose a, a tremendous asset. Shutting down the index would be unthinkable to this lifelong journalist and his family. They've devoted themselves to fostering pride and a tight community through the paper's stories. We try to have a feature story every week on somebody in the community because people like reading about their neighbors and their family members. Every Tuesday when the print edition is labeled, bundled, and delivered on foot by Jackson Thatcher to businesses on Main Street, the anticipation is palpable. Yes, this is one of our employees right here. Erin Cascarelli-Sullivan is co-owner of Cascarelli's, a popular restaurant on Main Street for three generations. I have several friends that have moved away and they subscribe to it. They love to look at the pictures because they might see someone's grandchild, you know, someone they went to school with, see what they're doing. There are also treasures in Homer's history. So Sharon had the paper's 150 years worth of archives digitized, an ongoing diary of the community for historians, people hunting for family lore, or simply a personal win. You know, you get two old guys down at the barbershop arguing about who scored the winning basket in a game 50 years ago. Well, they can just come right down here or go <laughs> online and they can find out who's, who's, who scored the winning basket, you know. But more important than wagers is the index's presence around village governance. We're keeping an eye on things that are going on. Uh, so it's important to be a watchdog, even if, e even if there are very few occasions where it's needed. Jeff Sherman is a village councilman and longtime business owner, and Art Kale is the village manager. If we're relying on somebody from Detroit or Jackson or Battle Creek, it's not going to seem that same, that same personal commitment and understanding of what's going on. And so it builds trust. It does. It builds trust and, and it builds community, which is one of the reasons I am really concerned about the newspaper. Uh, I don't want to lose it. I think local journalism certainly provides information, but it also provides social cohesion. Lynette Clemenson is a longtime journalist and now the director of the Wallace House Center for Journalists at the University of Michigan. We're actually in a fight for the survival of our communities. We're in the fi a fight for the survival of our democracy. And we have to be serious about the role that we play in that. To that end, Warner approached Kale and Litchfield businessman Brian Smith to help create a nonprofit with grants and donations as a new business model for the index. In the same way, you have people in every community who have done well, who are fortunate, 
who support the local symphony. They support the art museum. We need those same people to support journalism. That point is something the residents in Homer and Litchfield are coming to understand as the Warners strive to save a village institution. We don't want to be the ones that are shutting down a 151-year-old business. I've always considered Sharon and I as caretakers of the newspaper. So we're, that's why we're trying to think outside the box when it, in terms of a nonprofit or something to, to keep this paper going. In Homer, Michigan, I'm Dina Demetrius for Matter of Fact. Our conversation on the importance of local journalism continues online. You can watch our extended interview with Lynette Clementson on matteroffact.tv. Ahead on Matter of Fact, how this shape-shifting robot is a nod to ocean creatures. And later, let's get dirty with a board game connecting the health of the soil to climate change. To stay up to date with Matter of Fact, sign up for our newsletter at matteroffact.tv. Now for technology that looks like it's straight out of a Hollywood blockbuster. It's a robot that can change shape from solid to liquid and then back again. This shape-shifting robot was created by a team of American and Chinese engineers. Here you can see it melt and then move to escape a small cage. Once it's free, the robot can shift back to its original hard shape. It can also climb walls and even repair a circuit board. So how exactly does this thing work? Well, engineers put magnets into a block of gallium. It's a metal that melts at 86 degrees. An electric current heats up the magnet inside the robot, and that liquefies the metal, making the robot move and change shape. The Lego-like robot is inspired by the sea cucumber. That creature can quickly harden and then relax its body tissue, changing into whatever shape it wants. Researchers say the robot could eventually be used for medical procedures, like removing foreign objects or releasing medication deep inside a person's body. Still ahead on Matter of Fact, a board game that challenges players to defeat climate change. Finally, a game that encourages kids to get dirty, but without the mess. The board game is called Dirty Matters. The goal is to teach both kids and adults about soil health and sustainability. Five researchers from around the world made the game at the request of the British Society of Soil Science. Dirty Matters is free, and players can download and print the board game, the cards, and the characters. So here's how you play. Six people choose a character that lives in the soil. It can be a mole or an earthworm or a type of fungi. As you make your way around the board, you pull cards. If you get an event card like acid rain, pesticides, wildfires, or climate change, you gotta move back a certain number of spaces. Soil power cards like compost, manure, and integrated grazing help you move faster around the board. The goal of the game is to feed six generations of the Earth's population without polluting the water or triggering famine. You also must fight climate change by retaining more carbon in the soil and maintaining a proper nutrient balance. So that's a game everybody can dig into. That's it for this edition of Matter of Fact. I'm Soledad O'Brien. I'll see you back here next week. Listen to Matter of Fact with Soledad O'Brien on your favorite podcast provider. Watch us during the week on FYI and YouTube.